0: Um, It'd be great if you could uh, turn in a Bible to Matthew chapter 28. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, So get a Bible, Matthew chapter 28, and it's on page 1001, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now before we uh, turn to that passage together, I want to ask you as we begin, um, who is telling you what to do with your life? Who is telling you what to do with your life? Maybe it's parents. Perhaps parents who have a clear idea about how you should be spending your time or what sort of job you should be doing after university. Maybe it's parents, maybe it's the people you read online. Maybe there are one or two people online who have your attention perhaps more than other people. Maybe it's your friends at university or in the workplace. Maybe they're shaping your thinking and your lifestyle in all sorts of ways. Maybe like a magnet drawing you onto their path. Who is telling you what to do with your life and what are they telling you uh, to do? And what are they promising you in return? What are they promising you? Are they promising you acceptance or credibility or friendship? Are they promising you satisfaction or fulfilment or freedom if only you live according to their way? Who is telling you what to do? What are they telling you to do? And what are they promising you? Now all of us are exposed to many different voices, aren't we, um, in our world? Many of them good, but all of them telling us to do many different things, and all of them promising us many different outcomes if we do those things. And I don't know about you, but I can find it exhausting to know who should I listen to and how should I live? And we also know that turning inwards and trying to work it out for ourselves can lead to even more problems. So here's the good news tonight as we turn to Matthew chapter 28. Here we have the risen Lord Jesus telling us with clarity and simplicity what we should be doing with our lives and giving us, as he does that, the most extraordinary promise. That's what we have here in these words in Matthew 28, known as the Great Commission. Words from someone we can trust and words that have power to transform everything about our lives. Now, if you are here last week, as Dan um, has been recapping already, you might uh, remember some of the things that we were thinking about last week. If I mentioned the seed of Abraham, the promises of God, the gathering of God's people, the blessing that God gives through the cross, hopefully that will jog your memory about last week. And we could summarise it by uh, filling in that uh, sentence again on the sheet. God's mission, um, and here, here's my go at um, summarising last week, God's mission is to bring blessing to people, from every nation through the seed of Abraham Jesus Christ you all got that mm-hmm. I'll say it again God's mission is to bring blessing to people from every nation through the seed of Abraham Jesus Christ I think that's what we uh, saw last week. We saw that God is pouring out his blessings on people from all the nations and is doing so through the one who um, took our curse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight the question is, how is God going to spread that blessing to the nations? How is it that people are going to be gathered around Jesus um, for all eternity? Now the headings on the handout uh, tell you where we're going. We're going to see that the one with all the power sends us out into all the nations with a never-ending promise. So let's start um, with our first point, the one with all the power. Have a look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28 with me, and we'll read to verse 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now to begin with, I want to persuade you that these words are significant words in the Bible. You might have heard the Great Commission talked about or taught many times, and I want to try and persuade you that these are uh, words that are worth looking at, and these are really important words in Matthew's Gospel. Let me just give you um, a few reasons why that's the case. Firstly, it takes place on a mountain. Now the mountains in Matthew are some of the high points of the story. Uh, Pun intended, so that's a way way to remember it. Um, On the mountains of Matthew, we have uh, Satan tempting Jesus. We have the famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, We have the transfiguration of Jesus in his glory. And we have his teaching on the Mount of Olives. And now the Great Commission on the mountain of Galilee, the place where Jesus' ministry began at the start of Matthew. So mountains, are important in Matthew second reason why these words are important is because these are the last words of Jesus and the last words of the Gospel. Here is Jesus, risen again, having done what he promised to do and now giving these words to his people. Last words are often important and here we have the last words of Jesus in Matthew. Third thing, um, he's speaking to the eleven disciples and the eleven disciples are now representing the new people of God. They're the equivalent of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. These are the people who are going to further God's mission in the world. And then fourthly, um, these words contain many of the themes that we, we, we see in Matthew. Uh, we've got the mountain that we've already mentioned. We've got the idea of worship. We've got the idea of heaven and earth. Uh, you might know his big theme in Matthew, so think about the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as, as, as it is in heaven. Uh, we've got the theme of discipleship. We've got the commands of Jesus. And we've got the mention of the end of the age. So one writer uh, called David Bosch, he says, all the threads woven into the fabric of Matthew draw together here. All of the Matthew themes are, are coming to a climax here in the Great Commission. So I think it's right that we focus on this passage. I think it's right that it gets talked about and mentioned a lot. This is some, uh, a significant passage uh, with some precious words from the risen Lord Jesus. So look with me again at verse 16, and let's think about the response of the disciples. So have a look at verse 16 and 17. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now I think there are some good signs and some bad signs in these verses. I think the good signs are the fact that they've gone to Galilee. They've listened to the words of Jesus. Back in Matthew 26, before Jesus died... He said, go on to Galilee after I've risen and I'll meet you there. And so here, we, here they are in Galilee waiting for Jesus to come. They've been obedient to his words. The other positive is um, that some of them worship him. They do exactly what they should do. They bow down before uh, this king, the risen king who has defeated death. They're face to face with the Lord of all. But some doubted. I've been trying to get my head around this, and the word could mean something like hesitate. Some hesitated when they saw Jesus. There is some doubt in the minds of the disciples. Maybe they're not sure whether this really is Jesus. Is this Jesus? The risen Jesus who we know uh, died. Is this some kind of a hoax? But maybe, and maybe this is more likely, they're hesitant because they're not sure how Jesus will receive them. Remember, every one of these disciples has left Jesus at the time of his death. All of them ran away and fled. Peter denied him three times and so they're hesitant. What will Jesus do? What will Jesus say to them, given that that's how they've responded when he died? But they're given reassurance, aren't they, in verse 18. Jesus comes to them. He approaches them. He draws near to them. And he proclaims his power and authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So let's think about that sentence a little bit more together. All authority in heaven and on earth uh, now belongs to Jesus. I wonder if you can think back to um, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4. You might be familiar with that um, part of the Bible. There the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, you might remember, and he showed him all all of the kingdoms of the world um, right there in front of him, he showed Jesus all of their splendour and he said this to Jesus, he said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. So the devil, back in chapter 4, promised to Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if only Jesus would bow down to the devil and worship him. But Jesus knew, didn't he, that his path was a path of obedience to his Father in heaven, a path that would lead him to the shame of the cross, and a path that would lead him out of the grave and into this place of glorious power. Jesus now has more, doesn't he, than the kingdoms of the earth that were promised to him by the devil. He has all authority in the heavenly realms and all authority in the earthly realm. And it's been given him not by the devil, but by his Father. I think there's some Daniel seven resonances going on here. Daniel seven verses thirteen and fourteen is a is a significant passage in the Old Testament, and there we read that God will give all power and dominion to this figure of the Son of Man, who we um, we later find out is Jesus. And Jesus says that time is now. He has defeated death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan, and therefore he now reigns as the all-powerful King of the Universe. God has given all authority. To his son. You might know uh, these famous words of Abraham Kuyper, where he uh, summed up the authority of Jesus. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And so the first response that we must have is the response of verse 17, isn't it? They worshipped him. We need to realise that we are not the Lord of our lives, Jesus is. We're not in charge of our future, Jesus is. We're not in control of the world, Jesus is. And so let us bow down, let us worship, let us fall on our knees before our rightful Lord and King. He is the one with all the power. And secondly, the one with all the power sends us out into all the nations. Now the first word of verse 19 is a really important one, have a look at that first word. It's the word, therefore. That word transforms the command that Jesus is about to give. We're to go uh, not in our own power or our own strength, no, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore we can go with courage and boldness to the nations. As uh, DeYoung and Gilbert put it in that quote on the sheet, we go because he reigns so let's think together, what does Jesus, the risen, powerful Jesus, commission his disciples to do? Well, it's captured in the first few words of verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I think it's helpful to have what we saw last week in our minds from Genesis. Remember, God is going to pour out his blessings. And who is he going to pour out his blessings on? On all the nations of the world through his promised seed, Jesus Christ. It was always God's plan to include the nations in his eternal purposes. And now that Jesus has died to bear God's curse, and now that he's risen in power and glory, now that he has defeated death and crushed the serpent, the nations can be reached and blessing can flow to the world. And it will happen, and this is a challenging part, God's mission will happen as disciples of Jesus make other disciples of Jesus. Therefore go, he says, and make disciples of all nations, bring my blessing to the peoples of the world, go and be part of my mission. Now I want to take a step back at this point and think for a moment about the word disciple. Now if we're going to fulfil Jesus' command here, then we need to know what a disciple is, don't we? We need to know what we're trying to make. If ever watched the great british bake-off you'll know that one of the challenges every week is the technical challenge and if you've ever watched the bake-off you'll know that um, just before the technical challenge they have no idea what they're going to bake for that week so they get told the thing that they need to bake and then they have to try and make it and every so often uh, well this happens to me quite a lot when i watch the bake-off i have no idea what it is they're supposed to bake um, and sometimes all the bakers in the tent have no idea uh, what it is they're supposed to make you know you might hear <laughs> Um, you need to make a Devonshire split this week. Does anyone know what a Devonshire split is? No one knows what that is. And so you have to try and stumble through the challenge, making what you think might be a Devonshire split that looks and tastes like one. Um, I'll put you out of your misery and show you a Devonshire split. They look really nice, full of cream, Delicious. Now, I think the same thing um, is going on when we think about disciples, making disciples. We need to know what we're making, don't we? Otherwise, we'll just stumble through life thinking we're making disciples, but actually we don't really know what a disciple is. So let's go back to basics together and think together. What is a disciple? I want you just to discuss, uh, just for a minute around tables, what is a disciple? What, what comes to mind? What sort of ideas? What themes? What is disi- a disciple and what is discipleship? Just have a, a minute around tables to... Uh, throw out ideas. Okay, let's hear um, a couple of things that you suggested. So just shout out what comes to mind when you hear the word disciple. Let's start with the um, table at the back. Who thought they could get out of trouble? Follower of Jesus. Anyone else sort of say that kind of thing? Great. Yeah, any other ideas? Okay, yeah, so there needs to be somebody else involved who you're becoming more like in this discipleship relationship, yeah, great. Anything else? Catherine? Yeah, brilliant. So you have to give up everything to be a disciple of somebody, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, listening to the person, great. Might try and the people into white giants. Yeah, so the magnetic pull into this life of discipleship, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, let, let's uh, carry on looking down at verses 19 and 20 and let's see how Jesus talks about discipleship. Let me just try and show you the, the flow of these verses and uh, it should help us to know what a disciple is. So verse 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's a kind of headline. And then it's like you double click on that word, make disciples, and from there uh, flows two things. You know, two things drop down. You've got uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the first aspect. And you've got uh, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So let's just think about those two things a little bit more. Firstly, uh, baptising. Now I think this is a summary way of talking about conversion. It is the initiation into the life of discipleship. And I think baptism is a wonderful image of that, isn't it? Just think about somebody who gets baptised. The person goes into the waters and they come out again and they indicate to everyone watching that they have made a decisive turnaround in their lives. They've died to their old life, and they're now beginning a new life. They've repented of self-lordship, and they've turned to Jesus as Lord. They have a new direction, a new purpose, a new way of living, and all of that is captured in baptism. So make disciples, Jesus says, by helping people begin this new life of trusting in Jesus as Lord, turning away from living for themselves, and starting to live with their King Jesus, the one with all power and authority. So that's the first aspect, baptising. But the second aspect, um, it's not just about bringing people into the Christian life, it's also about helping them carry on in the Christian life. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So do you see, it's not enough just to see somebody saved and then move on to the next person. To make disciples means to make mature disciples who know the words of Jesus and who live them out. And this gets to the heart of what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple um, simply means learner. To disciple somebody is to teach them and to be a disciple is to learn. And so we're making learners of Jesus, people who listen to the voice of their Lord and who put them into practice. Now I find it helpful to think of this less like a classroom and more like a family. Now, if you think about a classroom, you've got a teacher who imparts information to the, the pupils um, and the pupils learn, they take it in, they, 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 they take on that information and then they move on to the next class with the next teacher. But in a family it's quite different, isn't it? Because in a family children learn from their parents in a different way. They hear their parents' instructions, they also take in their parents' worldview They are transformed into their parents' likeness, and they see their parents' lives. So it's much more transformational, isn't it, and relational. They're brought up in this this kind of environment. And I think that's what is going on more with what Jesus is talking about here, about being a learner of him. It's not just about knowledge transfer. It's about knowledge that transforms. It's about transformational knowledge that changes your life. And I think we get that. If we look at verse 20 a bit more closely, um, I think sometimes we, we, we maybe miss this or, or misquote this verse. It's not just teach them everything I've commanded you, it's teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And do you see the difference there? It's not just this imparting of knowledge, it's about transformational knowledge. It's about living differently. It's about hearing and doing It's about growing up in wisdom and maturity as we hear the words of Christ. Now just turn over the page with me on your handout and um, have a look at those couple of verses at the top of the the sheet. I think this will help us understand what Jesus means by uh, obeying everything that he commanded. Here are some words from chapter 11, verse uh, 28 to 30, which um, we heard this morning in, in this morning's talk as well. Jesus says, come to me, All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we can think about verse 28, can't we? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's a wonderful comfort, isn't it? But then we have verse 29 as well, it's come to me and learn from me, and learning from Jesus is actually part of the, the rest and part of the comfort that he uh, wants to bring us. And the way that he asks us to think about being a learner of him, a disciple of him, is to picture the yoke. I've got a picture of a, a yoke on the screen. A yoke um, was this a bar of wood that was placed over the shoulders of uh, two oxen, that bound them together while they were doing their work and and, um, helped them to do the work that they were doing. It was a symbol of submission and service and obedience. And I don't know whether that surprises you to think that Jesus would use that to describe uh, this discipleship relationship and this learning relationship. He says, take my yoke upon you, submit to me, learn from me, obey me. But the reason that is a wonderful thing and not a burdensome thing is because of what Jesus and his words are like. Jesus is humble in heart, he's gentle, and his yoke, verse 30, is easy and his burden is light. In other words, it's a freeing, liberating, joyful experience to be a disciple of Jesus under his lordship. Yes, there are commands to obey. Yes, there's a life he calls us to live. But as our loving Lord, every one of those commands and every one of those words is good for us. Now just note with me how different that is from the words we hear in our world. Remember the question at the start, who are you listening to, what are they saying, what are they promising you? There is a yoke, isn't there, that our world wants to lay on our shoulders. There are commands, spoken and unspoken, that people want us to obey. Be true to yourself, put yourself first, pursue happiness, do what you want in your relationships, you be you. There is a yoke, isn't there? There's there's commands that are out there in our society that we feel the pressure to obey. And we all know that those things can be exhausting and constraining and ultimately dissatisfying. But here we have the Lord Jesus saying, I have a light, easy yoke that I will place upon you if you will come to me and learn from me. It is an increasing joy to walk in the ways of Jesus. And we need to remember that as we seek to make disciples of Jesus, we're asking them to come into this life where they can submit to Jesus as Lord and what a wonderful place to be. So make disciples, Jesus says, baptise them in the name of God, bring them into this life of discipleship, where they submit to me as Lord, and then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, my light, easy yoke. Teach them to obey my commands. Do You see those two aspects of discipleship. So the one with all the power sends us out into all the nations, And then thirdly and finally, with a never-ending promise. Now you might be wondering, do these words apply to us today? Here we have the 11 disciples hearing the Great Commission from Jesus. Wasn't it just for them in Galilee? How do we know that it's for us as well over 2,000 years later? Well, I think verse 20 answers that. Here Jesus opens up the command to include every generation of Christians all across the world for all of time. Look at verse 20 again. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age." Do you see that with that promise there, he immediately goes beyond just these 11 disciples and says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. This is a promise that extends beyond this initial group. In every generation, disciples of Jesus are commanded by him to make other disciples of Jesus, helping people to come into the Christian life and helping people to go on in the Christian life. This is what God is doing all over the world, all of the time, among all the nations. And this is what God is doing among us in Lancaster. He is with us, empowering us and equipping us to make disciples. Now we're going to think next week about what kind of things might hold us back from obeying this command, what kind of fears, And reservations do we have about obeying Jesus? We'll think about that next week. And then in the future, we will also think about how we do this together as a a church family. So uh, that's coming later. But just for now, I want you to dwell with me on the comfort and the promise of verse 20. It seems to me that Jesus here goes above and beyond what is necessary to give us comfort in the task of making disciples. Just let let me show you that with this last sentence. So firstly, he uses the word surely. We didn't need that word, did we? He could have just said, I am with you, but he says, surely I am with you. We can be absolutely certain of this. The other comfort is the, the I of this sentence. It's, it's emphatic in the original Greek. There's an extra word in there, again, that is not needed. It's like he's saying, I, yes, I will be with you to the end of the age. Me, the risen Lord Jesus. God promised to dwell with his people, as we saw last week, and here Jesus says, I will be with you by my spirit until the end of the age. And then the last extra comfort is in the language at the end of the sentence. Jesus again could have said, I will be with you always. Or he could have said, I will be with you to the end of the age. Instead, he says both things, doesn't he? Double wham is it? I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So here is a wonderful promise of Jesus, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The one with all the power, verse 18, is the one who assures us of his never-ending presence, verse 20. The power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, they spur us on in this task of making disciples. So let's land this by uh, thinking about ourselves. The number of voices in our world can make it difficult to know what we should be doing with our lives. But here we have Jesus entering into that confusion and speaking a clear word with a clear command. Our lives are to be about one thing, not our careers, not our possessions, not our comfort, not our happiness. A life well spent is a life making disciples of the one that we follow, Jesus Christ. And knowing the power and presence of Jesus, that might mean that some of us here in this room choose to go across the world to a place where people haven't heard the gospel before and proclaim Jesus there. We could do that, couldn't we, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Every inch of creation is his. Some of us might choose to go back to our home countries and make disciples there. Perhaps you're from a country where there's deep gospel need, and Jesus says disciples need to be made there, and they can be made there because all authority is mine. Some of us might choose to go to another part of the country and plant a church there, and if we do, we can be assured of the power and presence of Jesus. Some of us might commit to staying in Lancaster long term and making disciples of the people around us. But the crucial thing for all of us to think about right now is not 10 years time, but it's today and it's tomorrow. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, um, a Baptist preacher. He says this, he who does not serve God where he is would not serve God anywhere else. That's a challenging thing to think about, isn't it? He who does not serve God where he is would not serve God anywhere else. If we're not making disciples now, then we won't be making disciples if we move to another country. And so will we use our lives now to make disciples? That's the question. Will we go across the lecture theatre and sit next to somebody and think, I have an opportunity here to make a new disciple of Jesus as I speak to them about him? Will we sit next to somebody at Real Food and turn to them and think, I can encourage this person tonight to carry on following Jesus and to obey all of his commands? Will we get alongside a new student who comes into church who is investigating Christianity and think, oh wow, what an opportunity I have to help this person become a disciple of Jesus? Will we chat to our young people on Sunday mornings at church and ask them, how is it going following Jesus? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life at the moment? Do you see, in the small decisions we make, and in the big decisions we make, disciples of Jesus are living with one clear goal, to make other disciples. We cannot be a disciple without being a disciple maker. And so with Jesus as our all-powerful Lord, and with the assurance of his never-ending presence with us, the encouragement here is to go make disciples of those around us. So let me pray that we'd be doing that. Let's pray. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Father, we thank you for the great power of Jesus. We thank you for his presence with us now by his spirit. Father, may we hear his call to go make disciples for the glory of his name. Amen.